What does it mean to be human? What makes human beings unique? And do we, in fact, have a soul? Hello and welcome to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle. On this podcast, my very special guest is Joshua Ferris, a philosopher, teacher, pastor, editor, author, blogger and podcaster. His specialities are the soul, divine justice, the atonement and a whole lot of other things. Too numerous to mention. He's currently the Humboldt Experienced Researcher Fellow at the University of Bochum. He was a previous fellow at the Creation Project, Carl F.H. Henry Centre and the University of London, among other places. He was a professor and lecturer at numerous universities. And he's just recently published a book with John Hunt Publishing called The Creation of Self, which is a new argument for God and the soul. But, Joshua, hi. First of all, hi. Welcome to the show. Hey, good to be with you. Thanks for having me, Brent. Oh, it's a pleasure. Now, before we get on to the book, Joshua, I want to ask you, first of all, about an article you published uh, in the American Mind in March this year called Maybe the Idea of the Soul Isn't Crazy After All. And this is fascinating. It begins with a statement, modern science can't give an account of itself. Now, why can modern science not give an account of itself? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think um, when we look at uh, science or the scientific method, as as it's often referred to as the empirical method, the empirical method itself doesn't sustain itself. It still relies upon other ideas or truths, like um, the fact that we are uh, first-person perceivers who uh, know things about the physical world. And you might even argue that the physical world is mediated by the fact that we know things about our own minds and our own thoughts and our own consciousness and reasons. And um, so rationality itself, the very intelligibility of the world that we study empirically depends upon other rational principles, rational foundations, arguably. And so I think uh, science itself, although it's often portrayed as being the sort of queen of all things, all knowledge, uh, it is it, it in fact needs knowledge from other sources in order for it to stand up, to get mm. off the ground, you might say. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And it has its own preconceptions, uh, doesn't it, where it comes from. Now, how has the idea of the soul, in your words, become outmoded and expired? Uh, yeah. So that's a yeah, good question. So, well, I would say there's there's lots of ways in which this, this is the case. When I look at, well, for example, academia, I've, I've, I'm, I read I try to read fairly widely across disciplines in philosophy, religious studies, psychology, sociology. And there's a common theme in in many of uh, the disciplines right now, at least contemporarily, most of them reject the the idea of the soul anymore, or even this sort of uh, this notion that uh, we are immaterial beings. They certainly reject something like the substance dualism that follows from uh, the philosopher René Descartes, who has become something of a kind of whipping boy in in a lot of the discussions, most of the discussions, even in um, philosophy and even in religious studies, where he's kind of given a hand wave, you might say, uh, he's ignored as well as, well, the soul more generally has been ignored in these disciplines and uh, rejected as kind of outdated. We don't need it anymore. Well, because, well, maybe we have neuroscience, we have the brain, and we've done a lot of work on the brain. We can make sense of a lot of aspects of the brain without ushering in this old notion that that uh, most people believed in throughout history called the soul or the mind. Yes, and Descartes was only a genius and 
who knows where genius comes from and does it even exist? Yes, of course, we know so much more, don't we? Gosh, we do, yes. we really do. Right. Now, uh, but how extensive was, <laughs> forgive my cynicism, how extensive was a belief in the soul, though, throughout human history? Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, uh, Mark Baker and uh, Stuart Gertz uh, in their uh, little book, uh, The Soul Hypothesis, that was published in 2011 by Continuum Press, I think they said it well, basically, that most people in all places at all times throughout most of history, I'm paraphrasing the quote because I don't have the quote memorized off the top of my head. Anyway, most of them all believed in something like the notion of a soul. Now, they had different ideas about the soul, but it was taken for granted throughout most of history that in most cultures, in most religions, that there was something of uh, the soul idea that was present. And this is certainly true of most, uh, they would argue, and I think I think they're right, that most religions have some conception of the person as a soul itself. Yeah, and going right back to Greece and Rome and uh, people like Plato and uh, the Greek philosophers who certainly believed in a soul, um, or some of them did certainly. You write that there's a compelling set of growing literature that examines the soul as based on personal identity, free will, experience, and so on. Now, what's some of that literature, the emerging literature, that's going back to the idea of a soul? Yeah, good. Well, I think there's a lot of growing literature in uh, philosophy right now that is really coming back around to um, reconsider the question of the soul or the mind as a as a kind of as a thing that could potentially maybe even exist apart from its body or a thing that exists in a way that it has its own integrity, its own independence uh, in some ways apart um uh, distinct, at least distinct. I like I like to use the word distinct rather than apart or separate. Uh, these are things that oftentimes theologians really don't like uh, to use with reference to the soul and body. But I think there is a strong distinction, at least, between the mind and the soul, and as com in contrast to the body. And uh, certainly, this has come up in recent discussions in philosophy, as well as uh, in religious studies more recently. But in philosophy, in the last 60 years or so, there's been a, a kind of a strong reaction to the early sort of logical behaviorist and the logical positivist of the early 1900s. And now, uh, and, and well, back then, and leading up to today, there was this kind of strong response to, well, these, these ideas, these physicalist ideas can't really make sense of consciousness. And consciousness is something that um, physicalism, well, really doesn't do a good job with. So the answers that are being offered by many of the philosophers uh, leading up to today are going back to something that not only looks like a similar problem that Rene Descartes dealt with in his day when he was engaging with the atomists of his day, but they're beginning even to look similar to the kinds of solutions that he's providing to consciousness, first-person consciousness, and these sorts of things. And so there's a lot of interesting growing literature on that uh, in philosophy, but even now, more so, it takes takes a little bit more time for it sometimes to uh, come over into the religious studies and theological world, but we're seeing more of that now, I think, as well. Yeah, so even theologians don't believe in the concept of a soul anymore. Is that what you're saying? That's right, yeah. The, the I, I, I find that quite of... remarkable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, how, does yeah. Con how, how does consciousness open the door to creationism? Yeah, yeah, big question. So I a little bit of history. So in my doctoral work, I really wanted to study uh, theological anthropology, the study of what it means to be a human being. And, and uh, 
when I was in my seminary days, I took systematic theology too with one of my uh, professors uh, at uh, at uh, the seminary, and in that uh, we we focused on this question of what it means to be human and what it means to be a human in the theological context, and those questions began to fascinate me. And simultaneously, I became interested in consciousness studies, intelligence, and um, as well as um, the philosophy of, of human nature, or anthropology, the constitution que- question, what it is that makes us who we are. And so it seemed to me that 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 question impinged upon other issues within theology that were of interest to me. And so that's what I wanted to pursue my doctorate on. But it was in the course of my doctoral research where I was working on uh, my dissertation and my book that I published, and then that I, I I came I stumbled upon this kind of intuition that if we are uh, souls, the kinds of souls that we are, it seems that it at least suggestively points to or is a sign, as some philosophers would call it, signs in nature that point us back to this question about the origins. So there's this interesting uh, question about, well, how is it that souls and bodies interact? And then uh, the further question even back behind that is, where does the soul actually come from if it in fact exists? And so this whole old question in theological discussions about the origins of souls and persons came up for me in a, in a unique way, a fresh way, where I was thinking, well, it seems to point back to something like a creator, a theism, God, and even more so to a robust creationist view. There's something about the nature of the soul that seems to require creation. And 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 so I began thinking about a variety of other issues related to biological evolution and how it is that physical organisms come into being. And, and it seemed to me, just intuitively for the longest time, it seemed to me that it was insufficient as an explanation for how it is that souls came into being causally. How did they causally come about or where did they originate? The biological answers seem to be unsatisfactory and I think insufficient to explain these things. And ultimately, without like, um, and I don't think this points to a sort of God of the gaps logic, I think it really does point us back to there's something that is necessarily required as a sufficient causal explanation to make sense of our souls coming into being. Mm. uh, Yeah, absolutely. We better get back to basics and and ask you the question, what, what is a soul anyway? How do we define the soul if we can define it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's lots of uh, different answers in theological history. Rene Descartes gives an interesting answer. I mean, he kind of vacillates between the mind and, and the soul in different terms that he uses, but they're all in reference to something of a a thing that has its own thoughts and experiences, a thing that has its own uh, mental uh uh, thoughts or or uh, mental awareness. So consciousness is closely and intimately related to the uh, description that most people would give of the soul in uh, history as well as in recent contemporary philosophy. So um, the soul is something something like I like to think of it, and I think this is kind of the 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 ballpark way of thinking or describing it. It's a subject of of experience or conscious experience. And so it's the kind of thing, it's the unique kind of thing that makes sense of the fact that we are uh, thoughtful beings. We have thoughts and we have experiences. We have, um, we have, uh, and these are the conditions that make sense of the fact that we can enter into deep and meaningful relationships with other people or persons. 
Gosh, so many questions um, to ask you, Joshua. Why do you call a soul a mind? I'm coming on to your book now, and I think there's a, there's a section where you call you call this the soul a mind. Why is that? Well, so in in my book, obviously not all would would identify the soul with the mind. If you go back to say uh, Saint Thomas Aquinas or something, Thomas Aquinas would refer to the soul as um, more. Um, kind of the base that makes sense of the mind is a kind of faculty. So a lot of theologians talk about um, the, the mind is a faculty or maybe even a power, a, a capacity of, 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 of the person or the soul itself. When I get into uh, and read Rene Descartes and later thinkers kind of following within Descartes' train of thought, many of them use these words interchangeably because they see the mind less as a faculty and more as a fundamental power, maybe a fundamental power of the soul. And um, they're almost uh, synonymous one with the other. Both of them are are referencing uh, something that is irreducible to the body, that is distinct from the body, that that is the primary referent of thoughts themselves or the primary referent of experiences themselves. And so there is a rationale for at least those following Descartes and those um, uh, following in the what's called the Cartesian tradition, why they would use this, the term soul and mind as all, almost synonymous with one with the other. And I think, uh, yeah, that's kind of where I fall in line in my book. Yeah, so let's come on and deal a little bit more with Descartes because his name has popped up a few times already. Uh, you write, I contend for a version of the soul codified in the philosophy of Descartes and carried along in what is often called the Cartesian tradition. Now, what did Descartes believe about the soul? And what is the Cartesian tradition? A good question. What did Descartes believe about the soul? <laughs> I've um, I've gone back in uh, to his primary literature, and and um, I'm off. I'm always often struck by his his um, intellect when I read him. Uh, oh, he's amazing. He is he's brilliant. He's uh, I mean, he's often hand waved in um, the literature, but um, we could we would be wise to at least go back and retrieve him and, and criticize him where we think he's wrong of course but 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 do so with some bit of uh, respect but anyway so descartes uh, it seems in across his corpus especially in his um one of his more important writings the meditations he um he uh, defines uh, the soul and the body as um two independent substances both irreducible to the other and uh, the person itself seems to be, for him, identical to the soul. The soul is something that the kind of thing that carries along uh, the nature of personhood or the person itself. And so in later tradition and developments after Descartes, whatever Descartes intended precisely concerning personhood, concerning the soul and these sorts of things, roughly that seems to be his view when you read him across the corpus of his literature. But later thinkers who take up and systemize his, his, his sort of views, they're often called Cartesians. And so Cartesians seem to hold this unique view um, in, in contrast to other soul views that my personhood is dependent primarily or, or um, uh, first and foremost on, on my soul, the immaterial thing that makes me me. It is the core of who I am that carries along my personal identity and makes sense of who I am. 
as distinct from my body. I am a person with a body, and uh, but I, but it's my soul, the immaterial thing that makes me me. And I think that's the important uh, distinction that um, Descartes or kind of the Cartesians later on made regarding uh, the nature of uh, personhood. How do you, though, carry the idea of the soul further than Descartes did? Yeah, this this gets into, um, I think, uh, what I would call neo-Cartesianism or new Cartesianism. And I think broadly what I'm saying is probably consistent with what Descartes says, but um, he doesn't spell it out. And he doesn't, I don't think he spells it out certainly this way. And that is that there's something, you know, in modern discussions, in modern discussions, this whole problem of particularity comes up. How do we make sense of the particular? In um, in, in older philosophical traditions in, in, in the medieval world, there's a big emphasis in, in the literature upon universals, and particularly going back to Plato and Aristotle, Augustine and Aquinas, there's this whole big question about universals and how we unify this whole hierarchical universe that we live in. In the modern world, we live in with these questions, especially with the existentialists of particularity. What is it that makes me me? And it's this intuition that I try to develop further in the book in, in, in terms of making sense of there's something about my soul that's not just a generic soul. It's not just a soul that's kind of generated in biological evolution, if souls are generated in that way. It's not just a universal. It's not just a, a, a thing that I share with everyone else in the way that I share my human nature with everybody else. You're a human, I'm a human. Uh, we have, There are other humans that are also persons, but there's something about each individual person that, that I try to really hone in on and reflect on. And that's the nature of the personhood or the nature of particularity or individuality that I think is really interesting that cannot be captured in, in, in these sort of uh, generalizable ways. In other words, as one philosopher put it, you are the opposite of anonymous. And there's something about that fact that needs to be made sense of, I think. Yes, well, let's come on and deal with some of the, the reasons why we might have souls, um, some of the arguments. Um, but before we do, I've got another question I want to slot. And I've got so many questions here. Are persons or people brought about by a person? And could we have been brought about by anything other than a person? Yeah, I think, yeah, my answer in short is that uh, we are brought about by a person or something like a mind. And this is what uh, leads me to this this uh, thought that um, theism is is pretty important or God is pretty important to the explanations of persons. Something like, a cre I mean, even the creator God, the creator that directly and immediately creates us individually as as persons, the persons that we are, and that personhood itself cannot be made sense of by, say, uh, solely by our bodies, cannot be made sense of by um, biological evolution, by generable patterns, by regular lawful patterns. There's something about the you that makes you you that's singular. It's a singularity, it seems, that can only come about in a unique way because, well, of your uniqueness that defies the generality process. That's the kind of basic intuition that I try to develop in a more prestigious way or sophisticated way. And I think that uh, intuition is probably right. So that would, that would make 
the possibility that we could come about in a generalizable way, unlikely at least, I, I doubt it, at a minimum, some sort of theism would have to set it up in such a way that God somehow makes it that your particularity comes about at this point rather than at another point. Otherwise, the particularity that is you is dependent upon a randomized, predictable process, and that leads us to other potential concerns that I try to bring out. Mm. Um, what are some of the biblical reasons or what are some of the biblical evidence for the existence of the soul, Joshua? Yes. So I think biblical evidence. So I think there's, I, I would say, um, following one of my mentors, uh, John Cooper, he wrote uh, this book, uh, The Soul, Body, and Life Everlasting, a very important book, which has obviously informed me in my thinking about some of these issues. He takes, um, in his book, he's he, he takes a much more focused biblical approach, defending this notion of dualism in the monism-dualism camp, dualism we've defined as the soul body and and um, roughly speaking, at least my personhood's somehow identical to my soul or carried along by it. And he makes this argument that in the New Testament uh, evidence, it seems to be, there seems to be this teaching of what's called a disembodied intermediate state. If there's a disembodied intermediate state that's part of the biblical orthodoxy, then that logically presupposes that there is something about me that can continue, persist, carry on, even beyond my body. There's something about my body and my me that is distinct. And so the disembodied state becomes really important to the case that he makes, and I think it's uh, right biblically. I think there's other things to say, other things we could point to, and even in the Old Testament, which is interesting. There's a lot of pushback from Old Testament scholars against the soul right now. But why? Um, why? Why? It's a good question. Good question. Good question. Um, what did you want to answer? No, no, I was going. To, I was. I was just gobsmacked. Um, um, I've a radio announcer. Someone actually took. Took my breath away. I couldn't quite get my head around that one. <laughs> I got you. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Do you want to carry on with your answer? Oh yeah, I would just yes. well I'll just summarize it and say that basically, uh, from a biblical uh, standpoint, I think that's the strongest sort of argument. If the biblical, or particularly the New Testament data, which I think you might argue is even clearer than the Old Testament on this point about the afterlife. You can point to various passages like 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul says to be, um, where he talks about the sort of earthly, heavenly language, the sort of dichotomy, the tent and being clothed and unclothed. Historical interpretations of that passage lend, lend themselves to this notion that there is, in fact, a disembodied intermediate state. In fact, that's how Thomas Aquinas interprets the passage, as well as a host of other passages in the New Testament. For example, um, uh, when when Jesus talks about fear the uh, fear not the man who can kill the body, but fear God who can do it, destroy the soul, depending on how you translate that passage. But he does seem to make some sort of distinction in the afterlife and the abilities of of man and God in terms of the destruction of the person. There seems to be some sort of distinction. 
So there does um, there does seem to be this implicit distinction between the two. There's other passages, interesting passages we could point to in New Testament, like when uh, Jesus talks to the thief on the cross and he says something to the effect of, today you will be with me in paradise. The most common or intuitive reading of that passage, whether it's right, we can debate that, is that that the person is actually going to live on, albeit their body is going to be dead on the cross at that point and in the grave, presumably. So there's this distinction, I think, that is intuitive in the whole of the New Testament, particularly it's grounded in this notion that, well, there's a disembodied state. It's Yes, I, I'm just going to ask you, we're coming to, to the end, we're fast running out of time. My goodness, time flies by. How much of the comeback in, in the modern contemporary writings on the soul is due to things like out-of-body experiences and near-death experiences? Do the secularists want to take those seriously at all? Has Have things changed or are we still denying everything like that? I think we're beginning to see changes. What's hopeful is that both, both simultaneously hopeful and disheartening is that there's been a more um, serious sort of confrontation with the nature of consciousness and mind as being something that is um, uh, wholly distinct or unlike the material, the bodily. Um, and so there's been this kind of reaction to what you might call the new atheists and the radical sort of naturalist scientist um, scientific sort of um, public thinkers of the day who would say well there is no soul um, they would even doubt the existence of of your own mental ideas as being real or your mind is a real thing uh, there's been a, a growing kind of pushback against that. Interestingly, I mean, stepping out into the sort of the, the broader sort of public discussions right now, there's been an overwhelming sort of engagement with consciousness, the um, the notion of, 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 of um, the mind itself as being something that cannot be explained by um, mere physicality or reducible to physicality. So there's been a whole host of interesting discussions that have taken place, even by secularists who are reacting against these sort of older, stronger kind of physicalist views of persons and saying, no, we need something else. Now, they haven't gone to theism but at least what they're proffering is 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 beginning to look more like um, this sort of older view of the soul, this older view that required God as as an explanation. Of course, AI is uh, raising these questions afresh right now as well. Yes, and that leads beautifully to my final question, or at least I think it's going to be my final question. Could AI ever create a conscious life form with a soul? The short answer is no. I don't. Have you so. actually? By the way, have you? I'm sorry to interrupt. Have you actually asked the chatbots whether whether such a thing as a soul exists? Uh, have you asked a chatbot? No, I, I haven't. haven't. But she, Sean Carroll has. Was it Sean? I think it was Sean Carroll. Yeah, the famous uh, atheist who argues that the soul is a crazy idea. He actually on his podcast he talks about his conversation with his chatbot, and he asks the chatbot, "Are you conscious?" And the the chatbot says. No. And and Sean pushes back and says, well, yeah, why not? Sure you are. Yeah, well, you should. And he tries to persuade him and they go back and forth and back and forth in this argument. And and the chatbot, um, uh, I don't think the chatbot was convinced, but um, 
I'm. So I asked them about about this. Um, uh, was it Sydney? I shouldn't. I'm not allowed to call them that now. Uh, or her, or it. Whichever one was available back in March when they first brought it onto the market for for Bing users. Uh, I asked them whether he had any it whether it had any concept of time, and it said no. I don't have a concept of time like human beings. And I said, well, that probably means you don't ever get bored. And it said, no, uh, no, I don't know what it is. But anyway, that, let's get back to the original question. Can we, yeah, can we, yeah. could AI deliver us a soul-filled person or being? No, in short, I don't think so. And I, I think um, the kinds of, um, you know, if when we, if we were to, if we were to take some time and look at uh, the different types of unity that are offered by nature, or even by computers or uh, machines. They don't provide this, the right sort of unity that consciousness has, the unity that we have as individuals. But even more than that, getting back to this sort of question that I'm trying to sort of uh, think about in the book, the creation of self, there's this individuality, this particularity that defies this sort of uh, this ability to produce it or generate it. Or to re, uh, or even the possibility uh, to reproduce it, because in theory, at least, like all material things, if we can uh, produce something artificially, we could reproduce that same thing artificially. It seems, and that's that would that would be problematic. There's something about the nature of personhood that defies the re reproducibility of 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 the same person in a lab, or even. Uh, it would raise the question, could we reproduce a perfect duplicate? That seems highly problematic. So a long story short, a uh, brief answer, I, I don't think so. Seems, mm. uh, I think it's impossible. Yes, there we are. Joshua Ferris, the Humboldt Experienced Researcher Fellow at the University of Bochum, and the book from John Hunt Publishing is called The Creation of Self, which is a new argument for God and the soul. It's very, it's very profound and um, very, very good. Uh, absolutely brilliant um, work, I think, Joshua. Where can people find you? Because um, you've got your own website, I think, haven't you? Uh, yes, I do. Yes, I, uh, that's right. They can find me a couple of places on my Amazon page. Uh, look for Joshua Ferris. Of course, The Creation of Self online. And uh, I do have my own personal uh, web page, although I'm not sure if it's up right now, but it's joshuarferris.com, joshuarferris.com. Uh, you can also find me on my, if you're looking for academic, my academia page online, you can find me there as well. Uh, and my YouTube, I have a YouTube page as well now. Yes, I've watched you on YouTube. Yeah. Oh, okay. Great. Yeah. yeah. Uh, thank you so much, Joshua. And thanks thank to you. our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes and generally try and keep me under control, which is a very difficult task. Joshua, thank you so much. Appreciate it. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter you'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.